You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. Many years ago, in a small Italian town, there was a very successful lawyer. And he was rich and brilliant. And he heard a rumor of this guy called Giovanni. And Giovanni was a a 25-year-old ex-soldier who had sold everything he owned, collected up all of the money, and given it all away to the poor. And this lawyer was so sort of shocked by this story of Giovanni, just thinking, why on earth would somebody do something as crazy as that, that he decided to invite him round to his house for the night. And in his house, he installed a little spy hole to watch Giovanni into his bedroom. I can't recommend doing this. If you have people over, you will, you will be prosecuted for that. <laughs> uh, but that's what the lawyer did. And he watched, and as the house fell silent and everybody else went to bed, Giovanni sprang up from his bed. He walked around to the side of it. He knelt down and he began to just speak over and over and over again the same words, my God and my all, my God and my all, my God and my all. This lawyer, he was called Bernard, he was so shocked by this incredible devotion to God. He was so like inspired and moved by how beautiful and simple it was that he decided to sell everything he owned. He collected up all of the money and he gave it to the poor and joined Giovanni. A year later, there were another nine of them. 10 years later, there were over 5,000 people who were part of this movement. And historians to this day trace back the impact of Giovanni's prayer. He's more famously known by a different name. It's St. Francis of Assisi. And you might have heard of his incredible impact right across Europe. Now, I don't know about you. I am not necessarily expecting my life, my, my prayer to have the same life-changing impact. People don't tend to start movements or sell all of their possessions when they see me pray, as far as I'm aware. Uh, But I am nevertheless hungry to pray and learn to pray with the same power and simplicity that that guy prayed with. I want to be somebody with a deep conviction when I pray who would kneel down and say simple words that are life-changing and moving. I think prayer is the most powerful thing that any of us can do. It's arguably the reason that you were made, was to pray and to be in relationship with God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set aside five weeks as a church to think about how to pray, really. This week, we're going to be thinking about just our own personal life of prayer. The topic is praying in secret. Next week, we're going to be thinking about praying with others and praying for others. Week three, we're going to think about praying for healing and particularly asking God to intervene when people are sick. Week four, we're going to speak about praying and listening 
so that it's not just a one-way conversation. We want to hear from God as well what he has to say. And on week five, we're going to look at the topic of unanswered prayer. And Jono is going to speak to us about praying but waiting. And I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, So let's jump in. The topic for the series is powerful and effective. And the topic for today is praying in secret. Let me read to you from Matthew 6, 5 to 13. If you've got a Bible, you could open it up and uh, have a look with me. Make sure I'm not cheating. So it's Matthew 6, 5 to 13. Jesus is speaking and he says this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need even before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily breads and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I've picked five words to help guide us as we think a little bit about praying in secret. Five sort of ways in which you can pray when you come to those moments just to be on your own with God, whether that's like Giovanni by your bed, or maybe it's with a great cup of coffee in your favourite chair, or maybe it's out on a walk with the dog or something like that. When you find those moments where it's just you and God, I've got five big words to sort of steer us. And the first one is adoration. Adoration, that's my first word. I think the first and foremost reason that we might ever bother to spend any time just one-on-one with God is for adoration, which just means like to adore him. Just means to look at God and think, oh my goodness, you are absolutely incredible. And Jesus starts his prayer this same way. He says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In that one sentence, Jesus is effectively drawing together these two big ideas. The first is our father in heaven. He's saying that God is like a father. I often think back to when Jono and Amy joined our team and uh, Jono would stand up to lead worship sometimes. And as he'd kind of stand somewhere up here, Ava, their little, I guess, two-year-old at the time, would clamber up the stage and stand in front of Jono, just looking up at him like this. Forget all these other people, what they're doing, if they're dancing or clapping or putting their hands in the air or not or whatever it is, like forget that. She just wants to look at her father and what a picture that is for us of what we should be doing in worship as well. Forget the rest. We're just looking at our father. That's the first task in prayer is adoration. Lord, you're, you're such a good father. Thank you just for who you are, that you love us and welcome us. But Jesus grabs this second idea. His second idea is hallowed be your name. It's the idea that God is holy. The slightly unusual word in the sentence hallowed, it's like you only 
sort of say that about cricket pitches and tennis courts and things, don't you? But um, it, it basically means holy, be recognised as holy. If you remember back to our holiness series, uh, we were speaking about how holiness really just means different, but good. God is, is good, but he's radically different. He's not like us at all. God is profoundly unlike us. And when you come into his presence, you kind of recognise that. Oh my goodness, as I'm kneeling down or speaking a word, I'm talking to the, to the one who speaks. And when he speaks, universes are formed. This is unthinkable. It's an unimaginable thing to do in your bedroom, to be drawn into God's presence. He's so different. He's so powerful and awesome, like he's nothing like us. And we need to remember that as well as we come to pray. Annie Dillard, she writes about this sort of awesome nature of God and how easily it's forgotten. She says this, when people come to church, they shouldn't wear hats. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life jackets, signal flares. They should lash us to the pews for our own safety, is what she thinks. We're going to try that next week. <laughs> But I love that quote because it's such an important reminder that when we come to pray, we are coming into the presence of someone awesome and powerful. And so adoration starts our prayer with the most amazing moment. It's a beautiful family moment, but it's also exhilarating and shocking. This is sort of like being sat on your father's lap as you jet ski off Niagara Falls. It's something like that. It's, it's an incredibly intimate moment and also potentially utterly terrifying and shocking. But that's how we're called to start our prayer. It's no good to just sort of launch into prayer and just sort of, you know, dear God, um, yeah, I've got this job interview and maybe you can sort that and my friend's kind of unwell and maybe you could fix that. And actually, to be honest, I don't know where I'm going with my life, but I don't have very much time, so bye. You know, that is not gonna, <laughs> it's like it's a start. But it's not a very good start. A good start is to come into God's presence. Take a moment to recognise who he is. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you're a father. Hallowed be your name. You're so holy and good. But Jesus isn't done. He's got a second word for us. I've got a second word, which is intercession. And intercession really just means praying for other people. And so Jesus continues his prayer and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the challenges that we're going to look at later in the series is the problem of unanswered prayer. Why is it that sometimes we ask God for things that seem like a good idea and he doesn't answer? But I think before we get to that problem, there's another one. And that's the problem of answered prayer, i.e. why does God answer any prayers? Why doesn't he just do whatever he wants? Presumably he has good ideas. Jesus says he knows the things that we need before we ask him. So why does he bother waiting for us to ask? Was he always just going to do what he was going to do, whether we asked or not? Or did he know that we were going to ask and so he was doing it knowing that we were praying but it still wasn't really anything to do with us? These are important and big questions which is why Jesus introduced us to a big idea which is the kingdom of God. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
And the kingdom of God is basically just as simple as it sounds. It's the place where God is king. And in one sense, that's everywhere. But in another sense, there are places which sort of don't recognise God as king. You might recognise that as a thing, that there are places in you maybe that still don't recognise God as king that would rather have you. There are particular places, communities, that are particularly adverse to God being their king. But one day, Jesus will return. And when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so his kingdom will be everywhere. Heaven and earth, they'll sort of become the same place, effectively. And so what Jesus says is when you pray, what you can do is you can sort of reach into the future. You can grab a chunk of that kingdom and you can drag it back into the presence. Or you can reach to heaven, the heavenly version of whatever it is that you're praying about. And you can grab a chunk of that and you can drag it back in. It's like we see what God is going to do. We ask him, like, what is your kingdom like? What's it like when Jesus returns? And he'll show us things. And then when we see those things, we say, could you do that now? Could we just bring that a little sooner? Could we, could we bring it a little closer on behalf of my friend or on behalf of my family member or some situation that I've seen? Jesus, would your kingdom come now? And of course, God could do that without us. But in his kindness, he's chosen us as a mechanism for doing that. He's chosen to partner with people to say, if you ask, I'll do it. And the implication is, if you don't ask, then maybe he won't do it now. That's what intercession is all about. It means that prayer changes things. It might need perseverance. Sometimes people describe intercession as like stacking up dominoes until eventually the whole set falls. And I think of our friends Bill and Jill, I don't know if they're here, who've been praying for this church alongside others for 40 years. For 40 years. I'm so glad they did. I wonder what you might pray for for 40 years. What would you be willing to pray for for 40 years? Make it count, is what I'd say. That's the second word, intercession. The third is petition. In 2002, there was a 19-year-old BIM man, and his name was Michael Carroll. There were probably multiple 19-year-old BIM men, I guess. Uh, but there was one called M Michael Carroll, and he walked into a corner shop. He bought a lottery ticket. Nothing particularly unusual about that, apart from that this turned out to be a winning lottery ticket. And so he bagged himself £9.7 million. Today, that's sort of equivalent to about £20 million. But unbelievably, by 2013, he'd managed to blow the entire lot and he'd filed for bankruptcy. Uh, when he was asked about it, he said, the dealer who introduced me to crack has more of my winnings than I do. Unbelievably, he added, I don't regret any of it. I did some reading around that and I discovered that one third of all lottery winners file for bankruptcy. Can you believe that? One third of all lottery winners file for bankruptcy. You might think, how could that be possible? One third of people don't file for bankruptcy. How, how on earth could winning a load of money suddenly make it massively more likely that you will completely run out? Well, in the Old Testament, there's a story that Jesus references that I think gives us a little clue to it. In the story, the people of God, they're roaming in the desert. They've got nowhere to go. And as they're in the wilderness, they start to get hungry. Well, fair enough, it's a desert. 
And so they cry out to God and say, God, would you give us something to eat? And he says, yeah, around tomorrow morning, around the camp, I'm going to rain down manna, it's called, like bread for you to go and collect. But he says, do not collect more than one day's worth of the bread. Just one day will be enough because I'll do it again tomorrow. What do they do? They go out and they get multiple days worth of bread, of course. But then in the morning, it's all gone off. It's gone rotten. It's like covered in um, worms and stuff, right? And Jesus picks up this idea in his prayer, saying, give us today our daily bread. It turns out that people often want more than their daily bread. We'd quite like tomorrow's bread as well today if we could have it. Or maybe even a year's supply of bread. Or in the case of the lottery winners, a lifetime supply of bread would be just about right for us. But it turns out it's better to have your daily bread. It's better for you. It's not good to have a lifetime supply of bread. And so Jesus doesn't encourage us to ask for a completely sort of sorted life. He doesn't suggest that you go to God and say, can I have a, a perfect life? Can you fix all of my problems and help me to live just perfectly from this point on to my death? He doesn't encourage us to pray like that. Instead, he says, just ask for today's bread. Just one day, that will be enough because he'll do it again tomorrow. And what that means, as far as I can tell, is that it means we're going to have to keep on praying regularly. If we only ask for a day's bread, we're going to need to pray every day. Otherwise, we're going to get really hungry for the work of God in our lives. And one of the things that I've found is that there's also a massive joy in asking for small things in prayer. If you only pray for massive things, I suspect you'll only ever see very few answers to prayer. But if you pray for small things, you can see stuff all the time. On Monday, Nick and I went to put up, it was a bank holiday, so we went to put up our tent and check that it was thoroughly mouldy, ready for focus. Um, and it turns out it wasn't, it was fine. And so we had a really nice sort of romantic afternoon, picnic in the tent and all of that lot. And um, at this point, a wasp entered the tent, sent directly from Satan. And um, uh, this, was a, this was a disaster, obviously. Um, it's quite a small tent, no one likes wasps. And so we were trying to convince this wasp to leave the tent. And it took, well, I mean, it, it went on and on and on, right? Trying to get this thing to leave and we were trying to sort of scoop it out with paper and knock the side of the tent and every time it would just fly onto another place of the tent until eventually we got to the point where we thought, well, we're probably just packing up anyway. Maybe we'll just pack up the tent and go, but the wasp really needs to go. Otherwise, when it comes to focus, there'll be a dead wasp in the tent, which is not a great, great start to the holiday, right? Um, and so at this point, I just said, right, Nick, step out of the way of the door. I'm about to pray. I don't know why she would need to move out of the door. The wasp could have gone round, but it felt like the right thing to say. <laughs> and she stepped aside. And within a second or two seconds, maybe, the wasp exited the tent. Right. Now, was that a coincidence? Probably. Um, yeah, it probably was. But what I found is that what Archbishop William Temple said is true. When I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, they stop happening. So I want to encourage you to keep asking the Lord for your daily bread, the small things, just the, the little things that you need. A very quick side note here on fasting, because Jesus comes to it later in the passage. 
Uh, I think there's a particular power sometimes in putting aside our daily bread, actually, our physical daily bread, giving up food. Uh, because it says to God, uh, the thing that I actually really need today is this other thing, even more than the food. So it just brings a level of seriousness to our prayer. So sometimes if you're asking for, for God to break through on a situation that hasn't been resolved for a while, it can be really powerful to just say, I'm going to set aside this thing. I'm going to set aside food because the daily bread that I need today, it's not actually that. It's this thing over here that I'm asking for. It's the same with, I often joked when we go on prayer walks, that if it rains, your prayers are more powerful, right? And that's a bit of a joke, but it's also kind of true because we say to God that our comfort and being dry and warm is less important than the thing that we're praying for. If you book an hour in the prayer room or something, it's like you're saying, my time is less important than the things I'm asking for. If it's in the middle of the night, you're saying my sleep is less important than the things I'm asking for. And that brings a level of sort of seriousness and connection into our prayers. Okay, we've had adoration, we've had intercession, we've had petition. The last two words I want to give you are confession and submission. Jesus started off this whole passage by saying, don't be like the hypocrites, right? And he's talking about this group of people called the Pharisees. They were this ultra-religious group who on the surface got everything right. And one of the things that they'd love to do is stand in front of loads of people and pray. Right, well, look who's talking, okay? So I've got to be careful at this point. Um, but they would like to pray these elaborate prayers so that everyone would go, oh my goodness, aren't they so wonderful and impressive and holy? But Jesus says, no, they weren't actually. Uh, in a different passage, he describes them as whitewashed sepulchres, basically saying it's like a grave that someone's come and they've slapped a new coat of paint on it and said, oh, isn't it brilliant? And Jesus says, well, it might look okay. It might look clean and tidy, but there's still a rotten corpse in it. Still a dead body there. He says, these people are like that. They stand on the corner, looks great, but they're dead inside. And he says that there's a real danger with this. Don't do that, Jesus says. Don't pray like that. Instead, he suggests you should go into your room where your father who is unseen will see your secret prayers. Lock the door, he even says, because he's so intent on us getting rid of hypocrisy. And so when we come to pray, I think there's an offer which is of repentance, confession, we get to come before God and say, will you fix the hypocrisy? Will you fix the, the sort of dead body in the tomb? Bring it back to life. And so Jesus' prayer includes the phrase, forgive us our sins. But then he hits us with this sort of sucker punch, right? We like to say that God's love is unconditional, which it is, but it turns out his forgiveness is conditional. There are strings attached. So he finishes his sentence, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The last word on prayer in secret, I think, is submission. Because when we're invited into a time of prayer, when we're invited into God's presence, it's something that happens personally just for us, but we're also immediately sort of catapulted out into his service elsewhere. And so it's great to receive God's forgiveness for ourselves, but it's not good enough unless we're willing to offer it to other people as well. 
He continues his prayer, lead us not into temptation, which sort of implies that he must be the one leading us. And so the final job, I think, as you come to pray is to ask for God's leading and his guidance and to submit yourself to it. There are five words on how you might approach praying in secret. Adoration, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Intercession, your kingdom come, your will be done. Petition, give us today our daily bread. Confession, forgive us our sins. And submission, as we forgive those who sin against us, lead us not into temptation. I want to encourage you, if you don't already, to find time to hide away in your room or in your car or wherever it might be, to come before the Lord and to watch what he might do.